Hello, this is Michael and welcome to the Dreadcore. Hello, um, today I am joined by Ian St. Martin, the uh, Black Library author. Um, would you like to say hello, Ian? Hey, how are you? Yep, and uh, today we're going to be discussing a bit about his work, his background, and um, obviously his uh, um, audio drama, A Lesson in Darkness, as well as all of his other upcoming and uh, other stuff that he's doing, um, because um, the CD version of that is coming out, along with three other stories on it as well, um, in a few days uh, from when this is released. So, um, yeah, so, so it's good to have you here, Ian. Um, how, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Good, good. How how's the weather there in Washington? It's uh, it's not too bad. It's it's kind of been a been a bit of a hot summer. Yeah, but uh, but not, nothing too bad. Yeah, it's it's thirty degrees here at the minute, and it's uh, eight o'clock at night. So, <laughs> uh, we we English aren't built for this kind of weather, right? No. Uh, okay. So, um, first of all, um, let's start off by asking um you to uh, well asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Um, so. What would you like to say about yourself? Um, hmm. well, I'm just you know I, I like I, like you mentioned you know I I write for Black Library. I'm a freelance writer, so I write for a couple of different uh, things, different uh, you know mostly in gaming. Uh, I've done a little bit of work for League of Legends, done a little bit for High Res Studios with their game Smite. Ooh, um, but primarily, <laughs> most of my work it has been for uh, Black Library and Games Workshop in their Warhammer 40k uh, IP. Excellent, and uh, that's fantastic. And um, did you grow up wanting to be an author, or was it something you kind of fell into? Um, I was always creative as a kid, uh, artistically and writing, and I always wrote you know stories and things like that as a kid. And then there was kind of a cool off period through you know middle school, high school, uh, college, and that. And then after college, I kind of you know, wanted to see about giving it another whirl and just seemed like something that I was passionate about. So I kind of hopped in and haven't looked back since. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Uh, I think you, you used to work in a bookstore. Was that, was that right? I think I read somewhere. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, that'll definitely, I mean, you, you work in any bookstore. Most of the people that work there are either wanting to be writers or trying to be writers or just have a lot of respect for, for writing and books and things like that. So it's a, it's a good place to inspire. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Plus, nice staff discount on on book, new books. That always helps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's get my paychecks right back to them. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I've done that. But I, when I've been working with games companies in the past, uh, yeah, that's exactly what's happened with me. So, uh, yeah, my my get, my checks have gone straight back to them. May as well just have the the money go back into the company account. Um. So what was your kind of gateway into the um, Warhammer universes, uh, be that 40K or fantasy or? Well, it's always uh, 40K because I'm, I'm very much a science fiction guy more than a, more than a fantasy um, mm-hmm. guy. And I think I, I probably the first 40K book I read without even realizing it was a 40K book was probably Fire Warrior. Oh, yeah. The, uh, the, the novel for the, um, the video game. Yeah, no, I think it was me all those years ago just seeing the cover and thinking it looked cool and looking for – so I was drawn – I was always drawn to kind of dark, 
you know, military sci-fi, um, you know, books like armor and starship troopers and, mm. you know, the mm. like. So it, you know, based, judging a book by its cover, it, it, it seemed like a full one. So I picked it up and I think a friend of mine sometime in high school gave me the first book in Ben counters, soul drinkers series. Oh, that's a good, um, one. That's a good one. I think that was my first, you know, real, you know, um, exposure to 40k and you know i've just been reading them ever since fantastic um so uh what was what was the first book you actually had published was it was it a black library book or was it something else first uh novel or well story that you ever had published properly that you got My paid first... for i suppose <laughs> yeah no the first thing that i've ever had published was a, a short story in a, an anthology of weird western uh, stories. It's called How the West Was Weird. I think it was the third volume of that. It's on Amazon. Um, and it was just a, a, a short kind of weird Western story. So that was the first thing I ever had published. And that was back in 2014, May 2014, around that time. Um, so you've not been in the writing and, game very long at all. Oh, no. Yeah, I'm, I'm still quite fresh at this. Um, but yeah, no. And then I think it was pretty close to around that time I started, you know, cranking out things for black library. I think it might've been later that year. Maybe, maybe it was the next year. I can't remember the exact year. I first saw, saw your first book. It was, um, a death watch one. Um, yeah, uh, I've I've got, I've got the name in here. Was it sword? That was Uh, the first black library story I've written, but it wasn't the first of my stories. Oh, sword, sword wind. That was it. Mm -hmm. Oh, I thought that was the first you had published. No, the first one that I had published for Black Library, I believe it was either City of Ruin or In Wolf's Clothing, my uh, first Lucia story. Ah, okay, fair enough. Um, yeah. They both I'm... came out within like a week or two of each other in, you know, winter 2016, I think. Oh, yeah, the, um, the chaos um, advent calendar. That might have been 2015 when they came out. Uh, no, I don't know. I, I'm think, terrible it was, I think it was 16. <laughs> so what was it like the first time you saw um, your name on a, on a published book? Yeah, I think um, it's definitely surreal. You know, I think people out there who are able to, you know, see something like that, because, I mean, you can dream of something you can work very hard for it and do everything right and it doesn't guarantee that you're going to get that opportunity or achieve that goal or succeed in that uh, that endeavor so when you are able to do that and you're able to you know do something that you've dreamed of and you're able to hold it and it's a tangible thing you can hold in your hand it's, it's, it's a very unique feeling mm, i can imagine uh fantastic so um in terms of your Warhammer fiction, you mentioned the Lucius stuff that I was thinking, I was thinking when I was speaking to a friend about this uh, interview this morning, um, they were sort of mentioned, say, said that, you know, you and Josh Reynolds have sort of carved up the big Emperor's Children characters for yourselves. Um, do, do you find yourselves, you know, discussing the, the Legion much between each other or do you sort well, of... Well, I know that... Yeah, so when I was pitching Lucius, um, I did not know that Josh was writing his Fabius is the the first of his Fabius books, Primogenitor, mm-hmm. um, till during the pitch process because um, my Lucius novel Faultless Blade includes you know a, a 
Fabius in the book, you know, once I knew that Josh was writing a Fabius book, you know, I just reached out to him just, you know, making sure that both of us are on, because with it being a shame, a shared universe and a shared IP, you want to make sure that either of us wasn't painting the other in any corners. You know, oh, he was over here doing this thing, but in this book, he's doing this thing at that time. So you just wanted to make sure that everything was on the same frequency and, and, and things like that. So uh, I got a, he you know, was able to send me a draft of Primogenitor before it got put out, and I was able to do the same with Lucius. So we're just able to compare notes and just uh, things like that. So it was, you know, it's a good, uh, good, good resources from each other. Yeah, I suppose that's a good idea because uh, Warhammer fans tend to be very, um, they tend to spot stuff like that. Well, sure. I mean, I think that's, it's the, you know, something you hope doesn't happen, but when you have so many authors contributing to a shared universe, sometimes, you know, things uh, can overlap a little bit. But uh, usually, you know, the editorial staff at DL is very good at keeping an eye out for those sorts of things and making sure that those sorts of uh, knots don't get tied. Yeah, so so have you ever had to change anything because of uh, something like that, or are they good at guiding you in the writing process to avoid that kind of thing? Yeah, it hasn't uh, it hasn't actually come up too many times with uh, with me where I've pitched something that that doesn't fit because of what another writer has contributed. You know, I, I I'm a I'm a fan of the of the books, so I've written I've you know read a, a good deal of them, so you know at least in the niches that I write in, you know, I feel pretty comfortable in what I pitch and making sure that I have that connected tissue to other things, um, you know, so that it feels like a shared universe. I think, um, you know, that was something I definitely wanted to focus on in Lucius book was making it feel in the same, you know, world very much so as Josh's, you know, um, Fabius books and the Black Legion series and all the things like that that are in such close proximity to each other in terms of factions. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, so, I mean, obviously Lucius is a character from the Heresy um, who's lived a very long time and uh, very influential. So um, have the works that have previously featured um, Lucius sort of influenced those books or is he so different now than the, that it doesn't really have? Yeah, not not particularly. I, you know, as much as it's that shared universe and you want to make sure there's connective tissue, um, I think something that's always, that I always try to keep in mind is that these characters don't belong to us. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm not the Lucius guy or, you know, and uh, just like, you know, Jim Swallow, for example, is not the Blood Angels guy. Other guys can write Blood Angels. Like Guy mm-hmm. Haley's been writing Blood Angels uh, a bunch recently, but it doesn't mean only Guy Haley writes Blood Angels now. So I think it's a it's a case where you want to look at what other people have done. You want to make sure that you aren't contradicting it, but you want to write like you're right. You know, you don't want to just write fan fiction of, uh, say, in Lucius's case, Graham McNeil stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, I'll read it. I don't think I've read all of it uh, that's out there, but I've read enough of it, and uh, you know, enough to kind of get how you know Graham conceived the character, how he wrote the character, uh, just so that when I'm writing the character, yes, there's 10,000 years difference, but it still feels like the same person at, at the right. core, um, you know, barring, you know, time and transformations and such. But uh, you don't want to be too shackled by what other people have done because if other people, if they want to read 
you know, something by another author, they'll go read that author. If they want to read something by you, they want to read something by you. So it needs to be your voice and your portrayal of the character. So uh, you don't want to contradict anything, but you want to speak with your own voice. That's, that's awesome. So, so, so like keeping the broad strokes um, rather than the fine details. Yeah, you just don't, you, you want him to feel consistent. Yeah, but without tying yourself down, which is cool. Um, so do you have any um, interesting writing quirks that you would, that, that, that you think you have? Like, I, I don't know. Um, uh-huh. I think probably one of, the, one of the more weird or unusual ones for me is that I, I tend to write in silence. I know most every other writer out there will talk and have blog posts about, you know, the soundtracks that they listen to when they're writing and, and things like that, the music that, that helps them write. And I really don't ever write music. Uh, I don't know. I think it was it. If I'm writing a scene and it's influenced by a piece of music and that piece of music ends, then I have to restart it or I have to get it back to that one spot that was hitting me or something. So it ended up being, I'd just rather, write off of what's in my head exclusively so i know a lot of writers you know swear by music but it's just for whatever reason at least at this point uh, noise canceling headphones with nothing on them is usually what i'm uh what i've got going on when i'm writing yeah that is actually fairly interesting it's different yeah a lot of writers i've spoken to in the past have been sort of very very keen to emphasize the kind of music they they listen to when they write so that is uh, it's kind of different. And the noise-canceling headphones, that's, uh, yeah, so I suppose it helps you concentrate. Yeah, it's just about kind of, about focus. Cool. Um, so, um, do you find that writing energizes or actually exhausts you? I mean, I go to Eastercom most years, which is the British um, science fiction convention and for, for the association. And um, when I speak to a lot of authors, they tend to find that they fall into one or two camps. The, the writing sort of gets them up again and they're like, right, I'm ready to hit another project or it wipes them out. And they're like, nope, I need a rest. So how does that the writing process actually impact you? Yeah, I'd have to say I'm probably falling into the latter. I'm, I am not a someone who who writing comes easily to. Uh, it's it's very much a, a labor. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, it it is sometimes it is very much uh, you know getting blood from a stone uh, writing. So it's not always like that. Sometimes I'm able to just sit down and it pours out of me. And sometimes it's an absolute ordeal, but, mm. uh, it just varies. It depends on the project. It depends on the size of the project, how long I've been working on it. Yeah. Um, I level a passion for it, you know, it's, so it's just, uh, it's going to vary. It depends, but, um, you know, I, what, if you're asking me if I have that kind of motor, like a guy Haley does where, yeah, in the time that we've conducted this interview, he's probably finished a novel. Oh, um, he's a machine. <laughs> unfortunately, uh, I do not have that kind of motor. I wish I did, and it's something I'm practicing to get better at. But uh, I, at this point, I do not have that kind of motor yet. Yeah. Oh, uh, one thing I, I forgot to put this in the sort of list of questions we discussed, but um, um, wh- where do you actually do your writing? Because um, when, when I was talking to for example, Dan Abnett, um, he has a specific office. He can only write in there. Whereas his uh, wife, uh, Nikki, um, will write all over the house. So where do you actually do your writing? Um, well, I found for my most, it depends on, again, on this, you know, 
how long, you know, what size a project. If it's something small, like I've you know recently been doing some small micro kind of short stories that are you know five six hundred words in length. You know, I can do those at home, and it's no problem because I'm able to, to kind of get them down and, and, and write them very quickly. But if it's a sustained writing session, um, something that's been helpful for me is just going to my local library where it's quiet and there's dedicated quiet rooms, things like that, where you can just sit there at a, at a desk with no distractions, no internet, no uh, you know phone buzzing or anything else kind of that would distract you. And you're able just to kind of focus solely on work. Um, so that's what I've been doing lately. That's cool. Very, very old fashioned, you know, the, the dedicated author in the library. That's kind right. of cool, isn't it? <laughs> um, awesome. Um, so, um, in terms of how you came to Black Library, I understand you came through the, um, previous submissions window, not the one that's just gone, obviously, because you've been with them a lot longer than that, but, um, for, for the Death Watch, um, um, uh, submissions window, was that something you had tried before to, to go for a submissions window with, for Black Library, or was this your first one? Um, actually, yeah, um, that was not the submissions window that I actually got in through the Death Watch. Ah, one. Uh, it was a previous one. One, the, how I came into, uh, Black Library particularly is, um, from a writer's workshop at one of the, uh, horse, or not the horse, just one of the Black Library weekenders. I think this was the second one. All right. That they held, um, where they had a writer's workshop part of it. Or if you came a little earlier and just got a different ticket, you know, you could sit down with the editors and some of the some of the writers was um, Gav and Dave Annandale, uh, Lori and Lindsay Priestley were there, um, and just kind of went and um, CZ Gun was there, and you know we were able to bring a piece of writing with us, have them look at it, critique it, talk about the craft, things like that, and then for people that attended that there was a kind of a smaller submissions window. So we were given a week to write a thousand word story, send it in. And then a couple of months later, I think it was probably around April of the next year. And the weekend, it was around November. Um, I heard back, they liked my story and were interested in doing business. And that got me started working with Lori Golding. And that was when I started working on uh, the death watch story. Oh, fantastic. So, so that's, that's interesting. I think a lot of people sort of assume that those Death Watch stories that, that made up Ignition sort of came through that pitch process. So that's interesting. No, because if you think about the list of authors, um, there were new writers like Robbie McNiven and myself, um, contributed to that, but I was not originally assigned to do that. I was, I filled in last minute to write City of Ruin, ah. uh, about 10 days. Um, I can't remember who it was that they had originally commissioned for, but for whatever reason, they weren't able to write the story. So, um, they reached out to me kind of last minute and I was able to put that together for them. Uh, interesting. Yeah. So that was sort of, so, so was that a, a ready sort of built story that you just had to, to write or, or was that a more not, original not really. work? Uh, what it was is that, you know, it was built for that game, um, that Death Watch game that had set characters. And so each one of the stories was for one of those characters just to breathe more life into them, make them feel, you know, uh, more relatable, more lived in than just, you know, a piece of plastic and a card. 
that gives you what their abilities are. So, mm-hmm. you know, but, uh, you know, there were a lot of more seasoned kind of writers that through that, you know, Ben Counter was part of it. Um, Peter Fahavari, uh, plenty of others, but, um, but yeah. Um, so it was really built to breathe life into these individual characters and give them backgrounds and backstories and things like that. So, uh, it had the very barest bones of a story that they wanted to tell. And it was up to me to kind of put me on bones and, and make a story out of it and kind of flesh it out, if you will. Excellent. So uh, very much a collaboration between game designers, I suppose, and authors. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, okay, cool. And, um, so was your, your first story that I think that we used, you said it was either Wolf's, um, uh, the, 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 was it Wolf's Cloak? Sorry, you'll have to forgive me. I've got some brain damage. So my memory is absolutely awful. Oh, no problem at all. Uh, really, but, um, yeah, so, uh, it was so the, kind of an order of when I wrote them was, uh, Death Watch Sword Wing. Yeah. And then, uh, City of Ruin. And then, uh, the Lucius story in Wolf's Clothing. Cool. Yeah, because I really like that Lucius story, and I was I was hoping at the time, yeah, I want to hear more about, from, from this. So I was glad that you actually did do a lot more more of that one. So um, when when Black Story, when, sorry, when Black Library uh, come to you uh, wanting a story written, um, is it more a case of you going to them with an idea, or them coming to you, or is it something in between, or completely different with you? Um, it can be, it can be both. It can be either. Um, oftentimes an editor will contact you because they think that you're, you would be a good fit for a particular project. Um, oftentimes, you know, you'll meet them for your, you know, every so often scheduling meeting for, okay, what have we got coming up in the next year or next projects? You know, what do we want to sort of scheduling and they'll say, you know, what do you want? You know, what do you want to pitch? Uh, and you can throw out ideas and they can say, okay, well, we could fit that in there. Or oh, that's an interesting idea of that. Or, okay, we want that to follow on to that and things like that. So it's both, you know, um, so it's both them bringing ideas to you and you pitching ideas to them. So um, it's, it's, it's definitely kind of a combination of those two. Oh, fantastic. Um, and um, so you've, you've done the audio drama that we'll, we'll be moving on to later. So when you do write a, an audio drama, do you actually have an idea of who's actually voicing the characters or, uh, and does that actually provide you any direction on how to write a particular character or, or not? Yeah. For, um, for me, when I'm writing the script, it's very much kind of disconnected from the rest of the production process. Once I send in a script to the editor and the editor gives me their notes and feedback and I get the final draft out based off that feedback, it goes to, you know, the audio department and the director and they're the ones that deal with the casting and sound effects and things like that, you know, all have at the back of the audio drama character notes, you know, I want this character to sound like this, or I want, you know, this character is from this region and they talk this way. So make sure that they use this tone of voice and things like that. And sometimes that makes it into the production. Other times they go with something completely different. Yeah. Um, it's it's very much out of my hands. I'm not involved in that process. Fair enough. I mean, uh, and when you write an audio drama, um, do you actually? Um, do you, I, I I don't know how the how it would work, um, and I'm just interested in your how you work. Do you write the script or do you write it as a prose version first? Well, um, you you definitely want to write it in script format, especially because 
you want to make sure that you're dealing with the word count that they want. You mm-hmm. don't want to end up not, you know, writing to word count and then realizing that you haven't put any direction in and needing to trim a huge amount of your story. Right. So it's very important to write it as a script. If that's what it is, then deal in that medium. Um, especially because Black Library was really trying to get away from things that could be short stories just narrated with sound effects and really focusing on things that could only be delivered through the audio medium. So it's much more dialogue-based, much more sound-based, less uh, narration, so that it really takes advantage of the medium in a way that uh, you can't get any way out. Yeah, I've no, I have noticed that with some of the more recent um, audio dramas. What was the last one I listened to? James Swallow's Face of the Void. And yeah, there was there was basically no narration in that at all. It was very much a radio play. Right. Which is, uh, yeah, which I suppose is a, is, a, is a great way of going about things because then it's sort of like, yeah, this this is why, you know, this is why we do it this way. This is the format. Right. You want to be a distinct experience from a, a short story or a prose work. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so um, you've written a lot of 40K. So when when you were given your 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 heresy, your first heresy assignment, um, was it a different mindset to get into for that? Or was it something you could simply more or less transfer over? Um, I, It definitely is a different approach. I think that two projects that I've done that are heresy related are both primarchs. So they're told, you know, in, in kind of great crusade, you know, prior to the heresy being uh, beginning. Mm -hmm. So it's very liberating in a sense where you can play with a lot more uh, creative kind of science fiction elements that are outside of what's traditionally conceived of as 40 K because you're not, you're, exploring and conquering a galaxy that's unknown so you can really kind of go out there and describe you know interesting different civilizations and different human civilizations and things like that you know with the compliances so it does give you a little bit more leeway to have you know some fun um unorthodox or unusual or out there kind of science fiction elements that in a 40k book where the universe is much more confined much more, you know, defined mm-hmm. than, um, you know, you have to, there's a more rigid, you know, set of what occurs. Whereas with Great Crusade, you know, and it's a lot of it is, you know, kind of exploration and things like that, you can be a little bit more off the wall. Yeah, I think um, Dan Abnett said when he was at first sort of given the brief for Horus Rising, it was sort of like he was told, make it exactly the opposite of what 40K is. Right. You want to convey that this is a hopeful time, that this is a, you know, humanity on the ascension and, you know, we're taking back what's ours and then everything like that. And you want to give this sense of hope and this shining kind of golden age so that when the heresy occurs, the tragedy of that golden age being averted and what ends up becoming in 40K is all the more resonant emotionally mm-hmm. because you have the tragedy of that loss. If things were terrible and then they just got bad and terrible, then there's not really that much of a difference. But if things were great and there was all these plans and we had all this ambition and it just falls apart and gets turned into something that was completely the opposite of what it was intended to be, there's real tragedy there. And, you know, you yeah. connect that on a 
level. Fantastic. Um, I well, when when people do talk about forty k books, as I said, I go to Eastercon, the um, sci-fi convention, and um, it's there was a discussion about sort of military science fiction books, and uh, someone completely and one of the panelists, um, and many agreed with her, completely dismissed all Warhammer fiction as simply bolter porn. Um, and to a degree, some of the writings, I think Space Marine Battles, for example, are a bit like that. But I suppose they're serving that kind of audience. Um, so when you write, are you trying to deliver something more original that's less bolter porn or something that is, you know, something that a regular, you know, as you said, you're a, you're a science fiction writer. So it's not writer, a reader, something that someone like you from outside the, the Warhammer universe would be able to get into. Well, I think, first of all, I think dismissing any, you know, entire IP as any one thing, frankly, is intellectually irresponsible. Oh, I, I totally I agree with that. I respect whoever that is. I don't know who it was that was speaking, but I don't think it's fair to judge an entire IP as a single thing. You can read, you know, two different 40K books and get two completely different experiences. Read, you know one of Peter Fahavari's books like Firecast or his, you know, uh, Gene Steeler's books, mm-hmm. they're going to be very different than a space Marine battles book. So I think hasty generalizations are never helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I understand the perception. I understand that in a, a lot of ways, some of the books are very action focused and when there's nothing to anchor that action, when there's no character, when there's no, you know, intrigue or anything like that, I can understand how it all blurs together into just one set piece after another where it's becomes kind of like a Michael Bay action movie where it's one explosion chain to the next. I can understand that, but I don't think that that's a fair assessment. I think, you know, you look at plenty of examples that have very interesting characters, interesting settings, interesting themes. I mean, you look at something like, I don't know, like the Beast Horizons. It's got a uh, series has plenty of action, but it also has a lot of political intrigue, you know, and things like that. So I think that if you took the time to drill down and look at all the different things that are on offer, you'll see that there's more than Bolter Porn. Not yeah. that Bolter Porn isn't there, not denying that it is, is there and is plentiful. That's a valid argument. But I think there's a lot more to it. And I, I think that's something that I certainly try to do my writings, not just have action after action. I want characters that people find compelling and intriguing. And I want those characters to overgo a change over the course of the book. I want them to learn things. I want them to be changed. I want them to be different at the end of the book than they were at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just explosion. It's, it's, you know, what is the conflict representing? What are the themes we're dealing with here? You know, who are these characters and why are they doing what they're doing? What's what's motivating them? You know, why did they get out of bed deciding this is the you know person that I'm going to be? Why does it make sense to them? And then how can we relate to that as an audience? Cool. Um, so that kind of brings me on to the to the to the next question, which is obviously you've written about well, you're writing about Angron at the minute, and um, you've written about Conrad Cruz. So they're sort of almost demigods and very very. So their mind is supposed to be, 
so much more different to a, uh, a baseline human or even a space marine. So how do you manage to put yourself into sort of their, their shoes, considering that they're supposed to be these, uh, you know, these fantastical, almost godlike beings? Is it more of a challenge than, than a basic space marine or chaos space marine, or is it, uh, sort of just slightly different? Well, I think, um, in a lot of ways, you know, they're as similar as they are different um, in terms of what motivates them, what, uh, you know, what inspires them, things like that, what their ambitions are. Those are all very human things. Those are all very relatable things. I think if you think of the Primarchs more as like you would have Greek gods, mm-hmm. where they're these immensely powerful things, but they're also immensely flawed you can relate to them because it's not this, you know, perfection that you cannot understand or define um, because they're very flawed and they're all a different reflection of their father and they all feel differently about their father. And I think that that is definitely something that's interesting to explore from a character perspective. How does it feel to be a thing that was created to accomplish this goal is that goal what you wanted to accomplish in your life and if it is or isn't how does that color your perspective of the emperor do you feel you're fulfilling your destiny by doing what the emperor wants or do you feel that you're being forced into a box you never want to be in by an uncaring father mm-hmm. depending on what you're talking about you get a very good answer to, to that question, I think that therein lies the you know, interesting parts of them. And then you have the entire, I mean, really the Horus Heresy is all about the relationship of fathers and sons. And you see that between the Primarchs and the Emperor, but you see, you know, on a much more granular level, we can are part of what, you know, what they hope to, you know, see father that they see in themselves you know shaping themselves to fit their, you know their primar uh, you know, wanting his approval wanting his respect uh how they feel about him versus what they were expecting so for a lesson in dance which is the story which is coming out on cd on the 4th of august is it yeah 4th of august um and um when you did that and what kind of background reading did you need to do for for to get sort of into cruise as it were um you know and it's a similar thing you know you don't uh you don't want to be too beholden to what's been written already but i think um i did do a quick uh reread of prince of prose mm-hmm. i think because it was very lots of it was very kind of curse centric and focused on him um so that was definitely something you know the uh, the forge world books the heresy books um that kind of give you background lore, you know, from kind of as kind of a history book kind of perspective of the different legions and the Primarchs. So that was definitely something I studied. Um, but yeah, that was kind of, uh, those were kind of the things that I focused on. Cool. Uh, did you speak to Aaron Dembski Bowden at all about them? Because uh, a lot of people see them as his legion. Um, although I think you've answered the uh, question about, you know, no one should see a particular legion as, as anyone offers, but. Um, no, I didn't. I didn't uh, speak with him about it. Um, Aaron's not the easiest person to talk to or get a hold of. 
Um, so I don't really rely, I, I don't want to rely on him to tell me what a Night Lord's story should be. I don't think that that's, uh, that's helpful for me as a writer. I think you want to respect what has come before. You want to enjoy what's come before, especially when it's as, you know, as high quality as it is as with his work. Um, but you want to tell your own story. I'm not going to write Night Lords and write you Aaron Dempsey Bound fan fiction. I won't do it. Yeah. I appreciate him and he's an influence for sure. But at the same time, this is my story and I'm going to tell it from my voice. And I think that's what you want as a reader because mm-hmm. otherwise it's by an Aaron story. Yeah. Yeah. Now the sound effects in a lesson in darkness, I have to say were um, particularly effective. In fact, I would actually say downright disturbing at times. Um, when you listened to it, was, was that what you were sort of aiming for? I wanted this to be something that you could only experience in audio. I thought that the central kind of climactic moment in it, and I won't spoil it if you haven't uh, listened to it yet. Just, just um, as a personal tip, don't read, don't listen to this one in, uh, in bed just as about to go to sleep. Yeah, I definitely, <laughs> I definitely wanted it to be something where sound is what threw it off. Not a narrator describing to you what's happening. But the sound, the jarring sound and the way that it builds and kind of slowly opens the door, showing you what's happening. Um, That was something I paid a lot of attention to, was a way to really use sound to tell the story, um, especially in that moment. It was definitely something I wanted to focus on. I've only listened to it, I think, once. Um, So I don't exactly remember. It was a while ago when I listened to it. I don't exactly remember if it matches what was in my head, but that's kind of an impossible task to ask of anybody. Yeah, that uh, that uh, um, that really did uh, that gave me a, a, a slight nightmare because I tried to listen to it before I went to sleep. Never again. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a, it's a it's a really it's a, the sound effects are really really gruesome and really effective. So. Um, so the Laws of Terror, as we said, it's being released very, very shortly. So um, seeing your name on an audio CD, um, is that going to be the, kind of the same feeling as seeing it on a book, or is it a little bit different? Um, it's, it is definitely the same awesome, surreal feeling. You know, it's happened before where um, from the previous advent, not this past year's, but the year before, I had a Lucius audio uh, called Embrace of Pain that was bundled up with, I believe it was a Dave Geimer and a Josh Reynolds uh, audio. They were kind of bundled into a CD. So I, uh, I've experienced this before, and it's great. It's a great feeling. Um, it's great to see it in stores and you know your local game workshop and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's it it's just as great. Awesome, awesome. So Conrad Kerr's at his core. He's kind of very much a sadistic, you know, he's very sadistic in comparison to the rest of his brothers. So when you were sort of writing him, were you able to use, you know, the, um, the viewpoints of his brothers as a guy, as a, as a guide, or is he just way too different for that? Well, I, I, I wouldn't say that I would write Curtis from Curtis's perspective based on what the others think of him, because I don't think the others really know him. 
Um, I think he's an easy one of the brothers to dismiss as, oh, he's just that psycho. Um, and they're not really interested in taking the time to really know him. And I don't think Kurz is particularly interested in letting them. Mm. So um, it really is important to make sure that, you know, as Kurz was front and center in the story, that it's really his perspective and it's really, you know, how he sees the world and everything like that. So that was what I, I wanted to make sure was, was coming out in the, uh, in the story was very much a broken, distracted, kind of unhinged, quiet character. I, I, I remember listening to it and, and, uh, what they had decided to go with was completely the opposite of what I had written as uh, for the character. I don't know if anybody's seen, um, the film Donnie Darko. Mm-hmm. There's a scene, uh, where Jake Gyllenhaal is, is with his kind of imaginary best friend, Frank, the bunny rabbit. And they're having a conversation and Frank, the bunny rabbit has this very whispery, you know, unsettling, quiet murderer's voice. And that is exactly what I wanted for Conrad Kurz. Oh, that would work. And I think what they ended up going with was something more Russian and angry and things. Hmm. So it just depends. You know, that's, it's like I was saying earlier, you know, I'll see something one way, but people that have been creating these audio dramas for years and years and years and have all this experience will see things the way that they see them and they're successful. So, you know, all power to you, but. I really felt like that was how I envisioned him. Just very quiet whispering. This is really only ever spoken to someone who's, you know, inches away from his face or he's talking to himself. Mm. Uh, And that's how I see Conrad Curse. It's just a quiet, you know, whispery murder. Um, And I wanted that to come, you know, through actions in the story and, and his monologues and, you know, He's like breaking the ship, talking to talking to the Legion and things like that. So, um, you know, I, I it was definitely his perspective that I wanted to focus on, rather than the uh, perspective of the other Primarchs, which may or may not be based in any kind of reality. Um, so, um, I don't suppose you're you're, you're going to be eventually, or you wouldn't even be able to tell us. I'm hoping you're going to be doing the Kurz book because uh, I don't think I've heard a better depiction of the Primarch personally myself. Because that was uh, that was phenomenal. So I really um, I really hope they give you the book. <laughs> there have not been any discussions about that. I there was someone that I remember I got asked that after the audio came out and. They said, you know, if you had your druthers to write a Primarchs book, who would it be? And I, I said, it wouldn't be Kurz. And I guess you guys know what the answer is um, for who I ended up picking. So. Cool. Yeah. Um, so I understand you. Well, I mentioned before you're writing that Angrom book. You, you tweeted that on Twitter a little while back um, after it was uh, put up on. Was it the Simon and Schuster website? Yeah, no, it got put out through there and uh, people started asking me about it. And I said, how do you know about that? Um, Cause the way that black library functions, they're very tight lipped. You know, they're very protective of their, of their IP and they want to make sure that 
you know, things come to light and become public, you know, when they're aware of it and when on their schedule and everything like that. Um, and, you know, but you have the internet and fans that are very, very excited and very passionate and looking for news and, and things like that. So when they see it's out on the publisher's website, kind of what the title is, who's writing it and kind of what the, uh, the blurb is to what the book's about. Um, you know, that's obviously going to be something that people start talking about. So when it's out in the open like that, you know, you might as well just say, Hey, I'm not spilling the beans here. It's already out, but yes, this is, this is a thing and I'm doing it. And I hope you guys like it whenever it comes out. I'm looking forward to it. Um, so I don't suppose you're able to drop any hints about it yet, or is it still very much under lock and key? Well, it's, it's still, it's off to the editors right now. Uh, the first draft was finished, you know, fairly recently. Um, so it's being edited at the moment. Mm-hmm. And then once I get feedback back and we make the necessary tweaks and adjustments to make it the best book that it can possibly be um, in my editor, then, you know, as, you know, it gets closer to release, you know, you know whether they want to market it or not or whether they want to do, you know, anything about it, that's really up to Games Workshop and Black Library. Um, but there's not a lot definitively that i can say about the book um i don't want to ruin any of the kind of the surprises mm-hmm. for it i think if you read the blurb on the simon and schuster website you'll get kind of an idea of what it's going to be about and tone that i'm looking for but i will say that i don't want to give you something that you've already read i don't want to give you the world eaters that you know and I want to potentially put into your head that maybe what you know about them isn't the whole truth. Maybe there's more to them than you think. And that's something that I wanted to do. I wanted to, you know, if you're going to write a book about a character like this, you don't want to just say what's, what everybody already knows. You want to maybe intimate things. You maybe want to, you know, put out some new information or, or tell things from a different perspective or, anything like that. So I'm, I'm hoping that when people get it in their hands, you know, it may not be the book that they're expecting, but I hope it's one that they really enjoy and they get a lot of, you know, enjoyment out of and interesting things to discuss and everything like that. Cool. Well, I, I must admit, I'm expecting, I'm expecting it to be, to be very good. Um, the quality of the series has gotten much, has, you know, it's really sort of, really progressed as it's gotten on and uh, every book seems to be better than the last so i'm uh, hoping that crane continues <laughs> um so would you uh so obviously you've written a lot about Lu- lucius so um is that something you would like to, to would you like to write about him in the heresy at all or are you quite happy with him in the uh in the 40k era um in terms of the general heresy series that's pretty much all uh, decided in terms of who's working on what. Um, I'm, I, I've never thought I'd be able to work on anything close to heresy. So the idea that I was able to, I thought I got in too late. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I was able to contribute to, to Primark stuff and sort of ancillary heresy, but heresy is a, a big point of pride. I'm very happy about that. But in terms of, you know, Siege of Terror is coming. It's already planned. It's already doled out to the writers, and it's the big guns that are handling it as they should be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think I'm going to be having anything involved with the core heresy series. 
you know, uh, but after that, other than that, who knows? Cool. Um, so in the past, I think I've read somewhere, um, that uh, you, you mentioned that writing for chaos was kind of a, a labor of love for you. Um, so um, is this the love that sort of steers you towards the big bad guys like Lucius? And do, do, do you find it a struggle to find sort of the same passion when writing about the good guys? Um, I think it just depends on the story that you're telling. Usually I do gravitate towards villains. Usually I, you know, if I'm watching a movie, I usually like the villain more than the hero because I find you know he'll hear you know the villains to be maybe a little bit more multifaceted and so I find them more interesting and I think I find contrarian approaches to life interesting in that this is someone who gets up in the morning as the villain but they're not necessarily viewing themselves that way they're not viewing themselves as an obstacle for the hero to overcome they're the hero of their story and you don't have to agree with what they're doing. You don't have to sympathize with it. But if you can kind of get why they're why it makes sense to them, um, then I really feel like that's a great character and a great villain. The worst villain that you could possibly have is the one who says, "I'm evil for evil's sake." Yeah, so, so says, there's nothing to relate to there. There's no goal. There's no you know end you know ambition or, or anything. There's no you know. I'm taking over the world to save it from itself is a lot different than I'm taking over the world to take over the world. You yeah, know, so, um, so, less so I the think Saturday morning cartoon villain and more, the more interesting nuanced. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, nuance and, and just relatability, understandability is, uh, is important to me. So, you know, I, I, I had said on a podcast that I think writing a Superman comic would be very difficult for me because he always does the right thing, no matter what. And then to teach myself a lesson, I decided I'm going to sit down and write a Superman comic based on that to prove that I can write an interesting story about a loyalist just as much as a villain and things like that. So um, loyalists can be a little bit more difficult if they're, you know, just paragons for paragon's sake, and I do the right thing because it's the right thing. That's not as that's not terribly interesting. But when there's depth and there's nuance and there's you know interesting facets to it, you know, just like any other character, um, loyalists can be intriguing. Awesome. Um, so, um, what's your? You said you're a big Black Library fan. Um, obviously, working for them helps. Um, so, what's your favorite story in the Black Library, and which one do you think is actually most underappreciated oh that's a tough one hmm. i think the most underappreciated um thing and this may be just because i've been writing angron is um a matthew farrar story called after Deshea. oh i and love that story was very early in the series and it was a short story grouped in with um a bunch of others uh and it's essentially about Angron's first meeting with the Warhounds at that time, um, right after his capture from Eusaria, and how Karn convinces Angron to, uh, you know, take command of the Legion and, you know, fulfill his destiny and all that. Um, 
hugely evocative, hugely creative. Um, Matthew did an unbelievable job of painting a picture of what Engron's backstory looked like. That was hugely influential on uh, on my Engron book. Um, you know, I, I, I so I think that's probably something that I wish more people would would champion and say this is a phenomenal piece of writing because it is a phenomenal piece of writing. Um, I do agree entirely with you there. It, it, it's an excellent, it's an excellent short story, and uh, it's one of the ones that I think um, you know is a is a is a real champion of that particular of that short format because it tells so much in so few words. If if that makes any sense. Um, Absolutely. Cool. So then, and what about your favorite uh, Black Library work? Um, I don't know if I have a particular favorite. Um, there's lots of stuff out there. I think, you know, I gravitate towards certain authors. Um, I mean, basically anything that John French writes, I find hugely entertaining and just beautifully written. He is, there's a, there's a definite poetry to his prose um, mm. that's really beautiful. And it's also incredibly deep and has interesting storylines. And it isn't, you know, uh, whoever wants to dismiss Black Library's Bolter porn, I would, you know, respectfully ask them to read a John French story or yeah. a John French novel. And I think that you'll see what the potential that BL has to be in his writing um, yeah. because it is just fantastic. It is it's, really good it's writing. Well done, it's well thought out. It's interesting. It's challenging. It's intriguing. And it's beautiful from top to bottom. So um, I don't have a particular. I mean, his Armand series is beautiful. Mm. But yeah, I would say his stuff is probably absolutely up there. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading Slaves of Darkness at the minute and it's a, it's a really, really fantastically well-crafted story so i would have to I, I would say he is he is i i i rate him very highly so and i know a lot of other people do as well um so um now you've got a space marines conquest book coming out in september as well haven't you yep yep i do yep so that's a that's a new series and your book is you know relatively early on in it so um did you get any involvement in sort of the the um, the style of that, that of what that series is going to be, or was it sort of established by the time you came on board? Um, I don't. I, I I wasn't really privy to kind of what the foundations of of the series were going to be or anything like that. Really, what it was to me was just another book contributing to the series. They're not connected to each other, and, and you know, it's it's sort of similar, I suppose, to like Space Marine battles where. They're part of a, a series, but they're not tied to each other. I think um, it may have been a case of them wanting to put the kind of most popular Space Marine chapters kind of front, you know, first and foremost, things like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I wasn't really I didn't really have any uh, input or or anything in, in terms of the broader series. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a uh, because. Because I must admit, so far the books I've read are, are fantastic standalone stories that, uh, that 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 are really good. So I mean, you're following in the footsteps straight away, very very early on, behind Gav, Guy Haley, Gav Thorpe, and Phil Kelly. So I mean, do you think that shows Black Library putting some real faith into your writing? 
Well, I mean, I think that, uh, I think that there's definitely a feeling that there's a sense of trust. You know, I think, you know, working on a, a, a fairly, you know, high optic character that's very well known, like Lucius, you know, implies a lot of trust. Mm-hmm. I think yep, definitely. being able to write not only Kurz, but Angron also in the Primarch series, who are two pretty popular Primarchs. I think that shows trust. Um, and I hope that this book does nothing but continue that trend. Yeah, definitely. Um, so how many unpublished and half-finished books have you got on the go at the minute then? Not necessarily just for Black Library, but for... None. I, I, I write books for money. <laughs> so if they're sitting half-finished and they aren't doing me any good... Um, and I'm one of those writers, unfortunately, who needs those deadlines to get things done. I don't, I'm not sure if I'd get things done if I didn't absolutely have to give it to another human being at a certain date. Yeah, um, a lot of people assume all- that writers make a lot of money, but, uh, um, you know, I know quite a few and they don't. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, there are certainly projects in my head noodling around that I'd like to do. Um, but there's no manuscripts in my drawer or, or any of, any of the other kind of, uh, cliches cool. so it's all so it's all uh get it done get it you know well and get it out so you can pick up more work well right it's 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 about delivering something to the reader that they're going to enjoy it's about you know adding to my portfolio of work so that people can kind of see what i'm about as a writer in terms of the kind of writing that i enjoy doing and the kind of writing that i do well and um you know, everything like that. The, the reader benefits, I benefit. It's, you know, it's pluses all around. Awesome. Um, so is there any particular book that has um, influenced your writing overall, be that a Black Library book or not? Um, is there any particular book that you would say is sort of a, a cornerstone for your writing style? I wouldn't say so. I wouldn't say there's a particular book that is um, really that you could read my writing and then read that book and say, oh, okay, this guy was influenced by that. I think it's because I don't read one author or one kind of genre only. You know, I'll read Philip K. Dick, and then I'll read Robert Heinlein, then I'll read, you know, Bernard Cornwell, then I'll read, like, Stephen Pressfield. You know, I'll I'll kind of jump around a bit, so there's lots of different types. You know, then I'll read a Chuck Blanier book that is completely different than all of those. I... You know, I, I don't want it to feel like my work is coming out of something else. I want to feel like my work is coming out of me. Um, and granted, all those things come in like fuel and help to inspire you and help to, you know, teach you great things about techniques and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I don't want it to be derivative. Cool. Because um, as you said, if you are writing something derivative, you may as well get, tell people to go out and buy that author's book. Right. Cool. Um, so, um, how many hours a day would you say you spend on writing at the minute? Um, it depends on the project, how many projects I've got going uh, at once. You know, I don't think I, I usually don't really set it as, you know, I'm working X number of hours per day. I set it more as a words per day. You know, I've got this size of project that's due at this time. So I need to do this many words per day these days. 
and wow. I sit there and I kind of do my word count. And I, when I get my word count for the day done, if it's been a couple hours or a long stretch or a little stretch, um, it doesn't matter. It's about getting this amount of work. Yeah. So it's a so it's a very um, structured process then. Yeah, I, I try to be as organized about it as possible, so that I know at any given day if I'm on schedule, if I'm behind schedule, if I've you know, everything like that, just so that I'm able to organize my, my future writing time. You know, if I missed a day of writing that week, then I know I've got to add those words to the rest of the days of the week to get to my, you know, get my goal. So it's just about staying organized, staying on top of it. So it doesn't end up, uh, biting you with a couple of weeks out from the deadline. You've got a huge pile of work to do that you haven't seen too. Yeah, so you like to to not have that creep up on you because I suppose then the 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 writing is forced as it as it, as it were. Well, as much as you can help, uh, as much as you can help it. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, do you ever read your reviews? Um, and how do you deal with the the good and the bad amongst them? I try not to. Um, I really appreciate when people take the time to tell me how they feel about something. So, and when I say I try not to, I try not to, you know, really react to reviews other than to say thank you for taking the time, A, to read my work, and B, taking the extra time to tell me how you felt about it um, and to review it and things like that. Because, you know, if it's just a ho-hum kind of book, then I don't think people would take the time to read it. So, you know, if they feel strongly about it, whether that's positively or negatively, I appreciate feedback. Um, but I understand, you know, taking things in the spirit in which they're given. Um, you know, I think being a freelance writer, you tend to get good at, at how to receive feedback. It's, it's not a challenge or a criticism of your craft. It's this is how I, you know, felt about it and this is what will make it the best that it can be. And that's what I'm doing with editors and things like that. Reviews are a little bit different because it's outside of that process. It doesn't quite have the context or the perspective that the creative side of it did, but it's also incredibly important because the audience is what the book is for. So it's important to take that and digest it, but not personalize it. You know, even if the reviewer is trying to personalize it in, in, a, in a particular case, you know, you, you, you don't pay attention to that part. You pay attention to what can actually help you, help your craft, help you improve, and you leave all the rest behind because the rest is just stress. Cool, cool. Now, I know a common question in uh, um, interviews for writers is, have you ever had writer's block? But that's a very boring question. So I wonder if you ever had what I would call reader's block, you know, where you're you're struggling to actually do any reading at a time. I think it depends. Um, There are certain books that I'll get into and they kind of turn into a slog and I'll stop reading them. Um, And then I'll just go to something else. I I have, you know, that proverbial mountain by your bedside kind of thing uh, of things that I want to read. So I've never had a loss for something to read, but I also read, I read tons of comics. I read, you know, tons of books, graphic novels, all kinds of things, different genres, different uh, mediums, you know, audio, video, you know, gaming, things like that. I think that there are many, many ways to 
absorb compelling storytelling, not just in, in books. Um, you know, like I was saying earlier about, you know, books coming in as fuel. It's not just books, it's films, it's music, it's podcasts, it's comic books, it's video games, it's, you know, walking around your street, it's museums, it's all kinds of stuff. So everything, you know, around me can really inspire me and throw that kernel of an idea in my head that turns into something interesting. So, um, in terms of reader's block, I don't really experience it just because there's so many things uh, for me to consume that I don't really, uh, I'm never really at a loss or something to pick up. Awesome. And for the, the two new lines, so Warhammer Adventures and um, Warhammer Horror, uh, obviously you were mistakenly announced as one of the writers for Warhammer Horror uh, for, for the first uh, one of the first books, but um, is are they, uh, is Warhammer Horror a series you want to to write for in the future? I'd ask about Warhammer Adventures, but I think I know the answer for that one would be. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 as far as the adventures, I, I don't think so because I don't think that I'm the right fit for that. Yeah. The way I write, I don't think would work very well for a children's book. That's and who knows? Enough. I might write children's books at some point, but right now, in, in, in this IP. I don't know how I would write about a Tyranid invasion in a children's book. That's, I don't know how I would write about Nurgle in a children's book or Slanesh in a children's book. Ooh, yeah. um, <laughs> flayed ones, Necron flayed ones in a, in a kid's book. I, I would struggle with these things again because of how I perceive the IP. Yeah. You know, so I will leave it to people that can perceive it in a way that resonates with that audience. People that have the experience like Kevin Scott. He's a great pick for that oh, because he knows a, how to deliver a great story that's expertly told that resonates with that audience. Yeah. When, I, a, when I told my nephew, uh, my, my, my 11 year old nephew who was writing, he was sort of like, yeah, Oh, he's amazing. Was like, I've never heard of him, but, um, well, it's not, no, I tell a lie. I have heard of him, but just, I've never read any of his works. So they never appealed to me. So. Right. Cause it wasn't made for you, but exactly. it was made for your nephew. Mm. So, you know, that's the target audience. Um, as far as the horror. Yeah. I mean, the Portmandu thing that they were talking about, they had talked to me about it a, a, earlier on while I was still writing Angron. And I'm very much kind of a tunnel vision sort of guy where if I'm writing my first Primarchs novel and it's about Angron, it's going to be very visible and a lot of people are going to pay attention to it. I want that to be my focus. I want that to be what I focus on exclusively. And not that I don't do side projects or anything else, but in terms of adding another 30,000 word novella on top of the 50,000 word novel I'm currently writing. I didn't want to turn in a subpar version of both of those things. Right. By that, that splitting makes sense. my attention. And so I had never really, I, you know, it was something that we had discussed. Hey, that's a cool idea. Let me get back to you. Hey, that's a cool idea. I want to finish Angron. Then let me look at my schedule. Let me look at where my commitments are with my other clients and then we can figure out where to go forward from there. And then I kind of heard about it on Twitter that I'm writing this thing, apparently. And based on the way the article was written, it sounded like I had already written it. And it just unfortunately wasn't the case. I think it was just a miscommunication because the Warhammer community is done by Games Workshop and not by Black Library. And they're sometimes, you know, they, they communicate with each other. So it's not all in one building. So they... There's a lot of communication that goes on. So sometimes, unfortunately, things can get their wires crossed or something. It doesn't happen often, but sometimes. And it's never a really a big deal. Um, in situations like this, it was just that I reached out to them and said, hey, 
can you edit this article? Cause I'm, I didn't sign on to this thing and you know, stuff like that. So it really wasn't a, wasn't a big deal or a problem. I just, I put out the tweet kind of explaining it just to clarify things so that people wouldn't think that I backed out of a project. I, I was never involved in it because it, you know, you never want to give the, give the, the impression that you flake out on projects when you work as a freelance writer. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, that, that's, uh, obviously a very good point. And even, I didn't even consider that. Um, cause yeah, obviously as a freelance, um, if you get a reputation as being a flake, then you get less work. Right. So, so reputation yeah. is very important. Freelance work. <laughs> I can imagine. And, um, obviously, so, so is that a line that you want to write for in future? The, the oh, Warhammer? sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I had the kernel of an idea for that story. It was just something that I just didn't have the time or the schedule to, to, you know, commit to. Um, but the way I write things, you know, I, I enjoy horror and I enjoy horror stories. So um, it's certainly something that I would be definitely interested in writing about, you know, in the future. Yeah. And, and Warhammer Horror is something I, I'm very much looking forward to. Yeah. I mean, I think you look at the IP in general and it, it is basically horror already. Yeah. Uh, at least how I perceive it again. Um, you know, like uh, it's it's all about that perception. You know, I think you can look at orcs as comic relief soccer hooligans or you can look at it as a <laughs> nine foot tall green gorilla with tank parts drilled into his skin and i look at it as the latter i see monsters and yeah set of the, uh, beast arises really did sort of um uh sort of for me redid the orcs in a, in a great way because before they were um uh they were they were very much a um almost jokey uh army but in Beast Arises, they really did change to be something more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? More, um, threatening, you know, more, ouch. Uh, right. Yeah. That, that makes any sense. That, again, it's that perception thing. It's how do you view these things and how I would view an orc in 40k would be absolutely horrifying. And I try to write them that way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's already you read stuff like Peter Fahavari stuff. There's tons of cosmic horror kind of elements in his work. You look at Dave Annandale's work. He obviously has tons of horror elements in his work. So it, it's an IP that lends itself to horror very well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely going to be lots of great stuff coming out. Yeah, I mean, just just, just the very idea of chaos is, uh, you know, is massively uh, you know, a massive massive thing in terms of horror i suppose you could do quite a lot of uh and then there's obviously um dark eldar and oh so much you could do <laughs> um which is fantastic um so yeah okay so i think that's uh pretty much um what we wanted to touch on today so um is there anything else you'd like to add um, anything um anyone or? in terms of upcoming projects i do have an audio drama coming out in September uh, called Taker of Heads. It's a Mortifactors audio drama. Oh, Mortifactors. And it has links back to uh, Death Watch Swordwind. And uh, the main character from that story, it'll, it'll feature him mm-hmm. uh, earlier on in his, uh, in his life. Um, basically, it's going to detail, you know, a unit of, Mortifactor scouts kind of deployed to a, a jungle planet 
uh, to reinforce the local guard garrison against the Tau invasion. Uh, and they'll be kind of earning their place within their chapter. Um, and so it's just a fun way for me to delve into what life is like on Apostle before it was destroyed and Mortifactor's culture and how they see the world and also integrate some fun, like Vietnam style guerrilla jungle fighting and, uh, no, that'd be different. Dash cannibalism. That will be different. And I haven't, I can't really recall seeing the Mortifactors in very much at all. Yeah, there, there isn't a whole lot with them, which is, which was a reason why I kind of gravitated towards them just because there's real estate. There's, you know, lots of stuff that you can work with and you can kind of visualize how you'd like things to look in a greater extent than if I wrote, say, Blood Angels. You know, there's a lot that's established. Uh, whereas with the Mortifactors, you have a little bit more leeway. Um, so there definitely were people that I want to, want to, uh, write more about. They're fun. Um, yeah, they're, just, they're, they're, they're an interesting group. Yeah, so so you've got the Taker of Heads coming in September. That's an audio drama. And then you've got your Space Marine Conquest um, of Honor and Iron, was it? Yeah, I've got Honor yes. and Iron here. And then obviously... That, that book has gone through so many title changes. <laughs> has uh, it? Yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's also interesting. Whenever I hear uh, Death Watch Sword, when I have to wait for a second because it was originally called Tempest of Blades and that didn't make it through legal because something else was already called Tempest of Blades somewhere where it would be a a copyright issue. Yeah, there was a, there was a novel, a whole novel that got canned a few years back for copyright issues, sadly. Um, That was a White Scar successor novel. Can't remember who wrote it, but. So sometimes, you know, uh, titles get tweaked or titles get changed or, um, editorial puts forth a, a better idea for titles and things like that. So I think of Honor and Iron is, is what it is right now. Uh, it's what it is now. It's, it's what it is. I'm going to do that. Um, but yeah, that's coming out in September also, I believe. Fantastic. Yes. Uh, I think that's down for September. Um, does it say on the website when? Yep. 25th of, oh, it says 25th of August. So obviously oh, the okay. week after. Will be the, uh, digital. Yeah. So pre-order on the 25th and then the week after. I love the cover on this. I absolutely love that cover. Yeah, no, it was, um, it was really fascinating. I have had a tremendous amount of luck with cover art. Um, because my first Black Library Weekender, I did their Saturday night pitch contest and the winner got to write for Black Library and I was, I came in, I think, second. And I was, you know, devastated. And the person who sat with me and kind of uh, talked to me for a while was Ray Swanland, just an incredibly talented cover oh, yes. artist. He does the Black Legion covers. He did a ton of the Warhammer Fantasy covers. And I told him I, that I'm going to make this dream of mine work and you're going to draw the cover for one of my novels one day. And his art is the cover of the Death Watch novel. Those same Black Library weekenders, I would go and pester Neil Roberts to draw doodles for me. And I said, one of these days, you're going to write the, you're going to draw the cover of one of my novels. And he's, uh, cover artist for of honor and iron so i'm tremendously fortunate in terms of the artists that have uh gotten you know that have uh done the uh work on my on my covers and then Sichuan lee and his phenomenal cover of uh faultless blade you know oh, pretty yeah, much that, is, that is a great cover my books by their covers <laughs> 
Oh, it's easy to do so <laughs> sometimes because they do look really good. Uh, and then uh, I'm just going to have a look at your Mortar Factors cover as well, seeing as we're mentioning the covers. So that's in September, which is da, 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 Taker of Heads. Oh, that looks, that's really cool. I like that. Yeah, because one of the um, the fun things that I got to do with Mortar Factors was kind of defined culturally, whereas for scouts, what their helmet is is the skull of their first major kill that gets them into the chapter. So I think what you see there is guy whose first major kill was an orc. So you see the collar is the lower jaw and, and things like that. So and you know and so until they get their skull, they go into battle bareheaded. Nice. That is and fantastic. So that's when they become when they get their kill and they make their skull helmet, that's when they become a take heads. Nice. Lovely. Well, I'm looking forward to that. So um, thank you very much for joining us uh, tonight. Um, I hope uh, I hope the weather is a little nicer where you are than it is here. Um, and uh, I hope you have a uh, wonderful rest of the weekend. I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time.